we have wrapped up Philippians, and what we've got our eyes set on, our next big project, will launch in the fall, and uh, we're going to be looking at the book of John. Uh, I'm really looking forward to even the month of July that's set aside for me to do some uh, reading and studying, and I'm looking forward to it for all of us. I, I am looking forward to what I'm going to learn. I'm, I, I've, I'm not going to this uh, biography of Jesus with the assumption that I know it all, so I'm really looking forward to what we're going to explore and learn together. In the meantime, in the summer, we've got some various Sundays. We'll have some special uh, uh, speakers, and, and we'll have some special things going on because of traveling and vacations and whatnot. So what we're going to do this summer is take uh, a few Sundays, five or so, to look at some of the uh, parables of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to start with a parable. We're actually going to look at it for the next two weeks, and it's going to be where we're starting out with one of the more popular uh, parables of Jesus. Most of us have been, are, are familiar with it. And it's found in Luke 15, if you want to turn there. And unfortunately, your Bibles are going to probably have some kind of heading called the prodigal son, uh, which is too bad because it, 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 it doesn't allow, it challenge our, challenges our memory to uh, the context. Jesus is actually telling this story because he wants the Pharisees to hear this story. If you look at 15.1, what happens in the setup is the Pharisees are offended and they're speaking out their judgment because Jesus is extending table fellowship to the unclean and to the sinful. And, and so what that means is it's not just that Jesus was willing to tolerate the unclean and sinful. The fact that he was extending table fellowship means he was bringing the unclean and the sinful into his circle of relational intimacy. And the Pharisees found this very offensive. And so he tells us a series of parables and it crescendos with this parable of, of the prodigal sons, plural. There are two sons in this story and Jesus has a point to illustrate in highlighting the journey of each of the sons. So we're gonna take it in order and this morning we're gonna look at the section of the parable that has to do with the younger son and next week we'll look at the section of the parable that has to do with the elder son which we will then realize was the ultimate actual point that Jesus was making because he was prompted by the Pharisees who represent and embody the values of the elder son and that's actually what prompted the story in the first place. So the elder son is actually the point of the story. The younger son is just creating the illustrative context for the point that, larger point that Jesus is making. But the story of both sons allow us to stop and reflect and listen to the stories of Jesus and ask ourselves, how does this parable, number one, how does it relate to the immediate context? And number two, in a larger view, how does this parable reveal the heart of God? And that's what we're looking for because in looking in how it reveals the heart of God and the heart of Jesus, this is how we move from interpreting the story from their story to our story to my story. So the big idea this morning is simply this. We never lose our identity as a child of God even if we wander away and he always rejoices when we repent and return. We never lose our identity as a child of God, even if we wander away and he always rejoices when we return. And as I said, this story is gonna illustrate there are two ways of wandering away from the revelation of intimacy with the Father. There are two ways of wandering away from this revelation that's supposed to be awakened in our soul of Christ in us, the hope of glory. One way is to leave our path of faith altogether. The other way is to become committed to our ideological faith while maintaining a lack of intimacy with God. Those are both, so we can wander away from God both irreligiously and religiously. And Jesus brilliantly illustrates these two ideas in this parable. This morning, we're going to look at what it looks like when we wander away from our faith roots altogether. So take a moment before we jump into the text and just kind of look through the atmosphere of your heart and ask yourself some questions about where you are in your own spiritual journey. And more, 
directly, where are you in the state of your own spiritual health? And the Bible Belt, a lot of us share some commonalities with our testimonies of how we came to faith. For me, whenever I came to faith, and I won't go into all the psychology that I've learned motivated me in that because at the end of the day, nonetheless, it's what the Holy Spirit used to bring me into this walk of faith. And um, it was mostly pretty easy for me. I, I grew up in an atmosphere, a church that had very, very tight doctrinal standards. There wasn't a lot of room for free thinking, really wasn't a lot of room for many questions because thinking and questions might create doubt and doubt is the enemy of faith, particularly if you define faith unbiblically as having certainty in your beliefs. Biblical faith challenges the idolatry of certainty, but religious organized faith affirms certainty. It, it, it lulls us to sleep with the empty promise that life can be neatly packaged, God can be neatly packaged, and we can have certainty about how the universe works and how God works. And so, but I liked that early on. I'm a person that benefits from very clear lines. And so it was very easy for me. And I learned as quickly as I could. I didn't question. I repeated all the things I heard the leaders say, even if I didn't understand them, much less believe them. If they said them enough, then I said them as well. They became part of my vocabulary. They became part of the projection of a false religious self that I was extending out to the world because in that context, the religious already never got rejected. He never got pushed away. He never got judged as long as he embodied the doctrine of our community. So it became very easy for me until my ideas about God that I had placed as boundaries around who he could be, began to falter and fail. Of course, my first interpretation is they faltered and failed because I didn't have enough faith. They faltered and failed because I was still committing sins. They faltered and failed because I just didn't know quite enough information. So I spent a lot of time trying to address all of those issues so that I could maintain once again control, tight control that these ideas about God gave for me, but they continued to fail. And at the end of the day, I realized as I reflected back, they failed because of the grace and mercy of the God who wanted to reveal himself beyond the boundaries of the cage that I had created for him. And he knew that my path to freedom would only be in the failure of my religious idolatry. Only then would I be willing to maybe exercise a little bit of humility and entertain the possibility that maybe all my tightly bounded theology didn't mean I was quite as smart as I thought that it was. So in the faltering of my ideas about my faith, in the faltering of my certainty, something emerged that I could have never created on my own, a little something, an impulse called humility. When humility came on the scene, the spirit led me out of darkness. The spirit led me out of bondage because the spirit began to reveal truth that I would never be able to see while in the certainty of religious pride. I could only see it whenever those things began to fail and I had to experience a little humility. So what about you? Where are you in your faith? Because if we don't talk about these things enough, what happens is we go through those journeys, but we just don't talk about them. They're not encouraged to talk about in communities of faith. Um, you don't wanna annoy positive people with your negativity. So we don't talk enough about this. So what happens is we continue to go through the motions while we entertain a false view of God in our minds that our hearts simply cannot fall in love with. And so we learn to become very cerebral with our practice of faith, even though our heart belongs to other loves because we drift away. So where are you? There's a great story in, in uh, or, or a great uh, uh, anecdote of this. 
And I believe Revelation 3 in the letter to Laodicea, when they're told, look, you do all of these religious things, but I'm standing outside the door of your heart. I'm knocking to get back in. It's time to return to your first love. Where are you? Have you settled into a quiet, cynical despair because your ideology doesn't work, but you don't know how to talk about that, how to express that, how to get help from that, but you do know that you need to be in church and you need to be taking your family to church. And when you come to church, you need to act like a church person. So you continue to engage in all of the activity, but yet your heart is not resting in Jesus. And so therefore things like worship songs probably annoy the heck out of you. They seem overly simplistic. They seem silly and foolish. You look at the worshipers who are lifting their hands and you think, they're somebody emotionally unstable. <laughs> right? Now, do I learn all these things because I've talked to you? Nope, I wish it were that. Well, I've talked to some of you and some of you are, I'm praying for you. But, <laughs> but it's just staring to the abyss of my own heart. And what I've learned is a lot of that darkness is shared with people in my community. And so, so, so where are you right now? Are you angry and cynical? Are you in despair? Because the truth of the matter is, it, 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 we have to take a moment to laugh at ourselves, but the faltering of our religious ideologies is heartbreaking. And it causes us to wake up one day in a world that we don't recognize. And then we begin to realize the, the universe that I was building with decades of my life and commitment actually doesn't exist. And we start to lose our bearings. We're not sure exactly where to land. The best place to land is to go back, not to the doctrines of Christianity, but to the teachings of Jesus. Re-Jesus your faith. And there are, no, there, there are a few better places to look to read Jesus, your faith, than going back to the teachings of Jesus, and we can start with the parables. And to see what Jesus is revealing about the heart of God in these stories that he's telling us. So where are you, and is it potentially time, as silly as this question may sound, to return to your first love? We all find ourselves in seasons where we wander off and it's time to allow us to listen to the spirit to beckon us back home, which that journey may not look like a lot on the outside, but it's a journey inside. Is it time to return to that place of your first love? Well, that begins with remembering who he is. And there are a few places to find a more beautiful illustration of the heart of God than in this particular parable here. So let's turn to Luke 15, uh, verses 11 through 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Remember that. The story is about two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, just pausing right there for just a moment, because we want to take in every moment that we have to pause and peer into the story, which is a gateway of peering into the heart of God. What we see here immediately from the beginning, that this younger son is in a posture of extreme disrespect toward the father. And the father doesn't respond in wrath, anger, and defensiveness and judgment. He actually responds with tremendous grace and mercy, and in fact, gives the younger son what he is demanding. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He he executed the speech he had practiced. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We're all familiar probably with that bit of the story, but let's take a moment to kind of, about five or 10 minutes to just meditate on this passage of scripture. As we said before, it starts out with this scenario where the son disrespects the father. And yet surprisingly, Unlike what probably most of the, the way in which most of us might have responded, the father responds with grace and blessing. Even though the son is essentially saying, I want your stuff, not you. And I want your stuff so bad, I can't wait around for you to die for me to get my hands on it. Give it to me now. And the father says, okay, it's yours anyway. You can have your inheritance. So then the son goes out and it said, all, all the scripture says is that, well, how does it say it? He went out and engaged in quote, wild living, which probably means sinful living. And the way the story reads and the way he kind of squanders his riches, I think that's the word that the Bible, that Jesus uses, he went and he squandered it probably didn't squander it on legitimate businesses that he was trying to engage in, but rather he squandered it on pleasure living, sinful living. And in that sinful squandered living, he probably had for a brief time, a community around him. Because with people with money can provide pleasure and they need friends, there are lots of people willing to apply for the friendship role. Perhaps you've been one of those friends in someone else's life. I know certainly I have. And so he has a moment where he's living a completely new existence. And you know that in the moment that he was enjoying himself and what the Bible calls squandered living, probably sinful pleasure living, there was a moment where he took a deep breath and said, this is it. I found it. This is indeed what life is all about. I have friends, we're having fun. And when I check the bank account or the money bag, there's plenty coins there to let the fun times continue rolling. And so what that son would have done is he would have lived into a brand new identity. He is no longer the son of the father who's a farmer. He is now an independent man with plenty of friends and plenty of good times. And now he gets to construct a complete identity liberated from that which he would have gotten from being in his father's house. 
And you had to know that for a time that had to feel like freedom to the son. What about you? Have you ever done that? I, I know in those moments when, my, when I turn my back and I move in another direction, there's always this moment that it feels wise and liberating, like I'm really taking life by the horns and experiencing life as it's intended to be lived. And the truth is, because you're temporarily out of the shadow of constraint, it feels very liberating. But the problem was this, even though he constructed and lived and projected a totally different identity, he never stopped being the son of the father. Now, one day he would come to appreciate that fact, but at this point, he probably despised it. He probably wanted to continue to throw off the shackles of being the son of the father and to be his own man and to engage into what seemed to be liberty. And it was great until a famine hit the land. And clearly, it was more than the famine hit the land. He had no resources. He had no way of even to afford to feed himself. He experienced the consequences of his choices. Herein lies our first potential challenge or our first potential insight. I don't know. I use illustrations from Bible Belt Evangelical Christianity for one region, reason. It's all I know. This is the atmosphere in which I've grown up. This is the house that I live in. I don't know what it's like from people from other traditions. What I know is growing up here in Bible Belt Christianity, I was not taught consequences. I was taught judgment. So this is a really important point because it radically altered my understanding of who God was. Because the way we teach consequences tends to be, God was so angry that that man sinned, that he struck him with a famine, and he made him get hungry, and he made him lose everything. It's not true. It was the consequences of making toxic choices. And it will hinder our understanding of the grace if we adopt that kind of personal vendetta God. That if you make him unhappy, boom, you got cancer. Not because you smoked in a nuclear submarine. That had nothing to do with it. But you made him kind of mad. And so, bam, he gives you cancer. Do you see how messed up this is? We don't tend to do it with ourselves. But when we're watching the consequences of others' lives, we don't have compassion and say, let's pray for that soul. They are suffering at the hands of their own toxic choices. No, we stand above them because we think we're standing with God and see, see what happens. You get away, you get outside of God's hedge of protection and all kinds of awful things are gonna happen to you then we use their story to reinforce fear and bondage within the group to say, okay, remember so-and-so who walked among us? You see what they're like now? Let this be a lesson to all of you, okay? Don't be mocking the Lord's teaching or you too will come out of the hedge of protection and look what could happen to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I literally heard that over and over again growing up. We use the narratives of people who left our fellowship and got cancer as an example of what happens when you break covenant with God's people. That, that narrative got reinforced. Well, it's all well and good for the organization because everyone stays afraid and stays in. However, we all began to worship an idolatrous perhaps even demonic version of God because it was false. It was not the God revealed in the heart of Jesus. Our God didn't look like Jesus. In fact, Jesus was a little perplexing to us because God didn't look like Jesus. But what is happening in this story is simply negative consequences of toxic choices. Now, here's the irony what we will see in how the story progresses, not only is that not a sign of God in anger throwing out consequences, 
the Holy Spirit uses those consequences. These are the very things that caused the younger son to reconsider the way that he was living. That moment of reconsideration is where the mercy and grace of God gets interjected. It is that moment of regret that is not the moment for I told you so, but that's the moment when the Holy Spirit says, I can heal your heart. And so God is actually, so, so the consequences of those choices fall upon him, but it's crystal clear in the story that these are not the judgments of the father, they're simply the consequences of his choices. And so he began to reconsider and he began to consider coming back home, but note the motives. I I don't know what this is, we will say things, I've heard this all my life, I go to reform, make a better decision. And inevitably there's someone in the accountability group or, or in whatever group says, well, are you sorry that you did it or that you got caught? That I got caught. Get out of here. What is, where are you living, dude? If I hadn't got caught and experienced these negative consequences, I'd still be having a big time over here. But the consequences kind of stunk. And so it allowed me to reconsider. Why why is that some kind of downgraded repentance because someone gains wisdom from their mistakes? Why do we shame them for that as if it's somehow not pure enough to be accepted by God? The fact of the matter, look at your own life. The majority of our changes come from the discomfort of the consequences of the choices that we're making. That's what drives most of us to do most change in any other part of our lives. Do you think if the doctor hadn't scared me straight with threats of heart disease and cancer and diabetes that I'd give one flip about passing on the fried chicken for the baked chicken? No way. Fried chicken's way better. (laughs) However, the consequences of fried chicken are not nearly as desirable as the consequences of baked chicken. And for the more pure vegans among us, they would say, and they're not as, you know, go broccoli, not chicken. Um, not there, <laughs> life hadn't got that bad yet. <laughs> so, but do you see how we demonize the natural processes that the Holy Spirit is using as acts of mercy? He uses these consequences to soften our hearts. It's the thing that causes us to reconsider. It's the thing that maybe gives us room to develop a little bit of humility in our heart. And the truth of the matter is, the son didn't return to the father out of love. He returned out of despair. And he was not demonized for having a lesser motive. In fact, he was embraced. So this is what happens. He's... He gets a job feeding pigs. And, you know, I won't try to impress you with my knowledge of biblical culture because I'm sure you've heard ad nauseum. Pigs were a dirty, uh, unclean animal to the Jews, so this would have been really extra offensive. Yes, that's true, but we all know that. Okay, but he's looking and he's reaching down and he wants to eat the pods that that he's feeding to the pigs. I was taught to look at a man eating with the pigs and look down on that man in judgment. How perverse, how disgusting is he that he'd be willing to eat out of the trough with the pigs, that he would even consider it as a temptation. The the man didn't do it because he was perverse and lost his mind. He did it because he was hungry and he was hurting. It will radically change our worldview. Let's bring it down to the part of society that we look down upon the most within Carter County. I would submit to you that it's possible that the meth addict isn't lazy and just wants to waste their life. The meth addict is looking for the love of God every time they shoot up. And every time they get high, we have to reframe the liberty with which we just cast judgment on people's motives as we look at them. The man 
was hungry and in pain. He had no other resource at that moment that he could think of. So he was tempted to get down and live the lifestyle of the swine. And in that despair and pain, because of the very fact he was in that low pace place and for no other fact, it says, how does the Bible say it? We got to find it. It's so, so, oh, there it is, verse 17. Then it just says, then he came to his senses. He came to his senses. He goes, wait a second. Wait, I don't have to do this. I bet if I go back home, I know I can't have my place. I've forfeited the right to be my father's son, but just maybe. And, and this is where, what's interesting. He had just enough of the revelation of the heart of the father that he was willing to believe that he might be merciful enough to take him back as a hired hand. It was a small revelation of the heart of the father, but it was enough to bring him home. It was a limited revelation of the heart of the father, but it was enough to bring him home and be willing to risk asking the question. I know I can't be your son, but is it possible that I could maybe come and be one of the hired hands? I am no longer worthy to be your son. Sometimes as we practice the faith and as we pick up jingles and as we pick up slogans from our faith that we then adopt into our vocabulary that then just become assumptions that we don't ever stop to think about. And one of them is this word and this analogy of being lost. And I don't know, I think geese always know where they're going. And somehow what's emerged in evangelical churches is they're lost as a goose. Now, if any of you know the etymology of that phrase, I would love to be educated on it and I will buy you a cup of coffee to learn it. But I would hear that all the time. Look at them, they're lost as a goose. And so we use this word lost. And what we mean by that is this, they're living sinful lives that God's displeased with. They're lost. But it kind of gets this idea that when we're lost and then we find Jesus, then we're not lost anymore. And we use these phrases, I was lost, but then I found Jesus. I was dead, but then I came alive. If you look in this story, these are metaphors. These aren't, meta, these aren't metaphysical realities we're talking about. And just take a moment to think about that concept of being lost to God and then finding Jesus. You would literally have to be a heretic if you actually believed that. Because if anyone's lost to God, that means you have no faith in God's omniscience or omnipresence, which given all of our theological disagreements, nearly every person who is not even a Christian, but a deist is able to accept that God knows everything and he's everywhere all at once and he has all the power to do whatever he pleases. These omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence are kind of the foundations of what it means by God. However, if we can be lost, then God is not omniscient. If we can be lost away from God, then God is not omnipresent. So I understand these, this language, as long as we're using it as metaphors of analogies and we understand in our mind, they are not literal. The son was lost, but he wasn't lost to the father. The father always knew who he was. He was lost to himself. That's what the consequences of his choices brought him to. He lost himself. He was lost to himself. Even when he decided to come back home, he was still lost to himself. I am not worthy to be called your son, but maybe I can be a hired servant. And then the shocking twist of the story. While he's still a long way off, the scripture says in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. My friends, this is not the God I live with most of my life. The God I lived with is, number one, I'm not sure he would have been looking for me in the first place after I wandered away. 
And if I did come back, I definitely had to pay my dues to get back into some kind of decent status. Remember the great theologian Bono penned those words. You say love is the answer. Love the higher law. Love is the answer. Love the higher law. You asked me to enter. But then you made me crawl. And I can't be holding on to what you've got when all you've got is hurt. This is the experience, not just of Bono, but an entire generation of potential followers of Jesus that didn't look the way the previous generation looked and didn't have the same set of social and financial values that the previous generation had. That song resonated with an entire generation of people that felt like second-class citizens in their churches all over the world, which is why the song is still re-recorded and still speaks even to this day, nearly 30 years after its release. That's not the heart of the father. He says that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And I can't help but in that imagery, picture in my mind that it implies the father was watching for him. And then when he sees the son, it is not enough to wait. Yep, here he comes. Knew he'd be crawling back sooner or later. Now, you know, he's not sorry what he did. He's sorry he got caught. Those consequences, how's that feeling for you? Come on, come on, let's hear what you have to say. You know what you need to say. I know what you need to say. That's not it at all. The father ran to him, which would have meant, now, I, I, look, at this point, you've got plenty of evidence to just accept that your pastor is a little bit of a weirdo. If you don't see it now, that's on you. So I think as a joke, someone gave me like a Middle Eastern robe. I flip and love that thing. I wear it around the house all the time. On my days off, I may have my copy on the front porch with my Middle Eastern robe. It's airy. I love it. I've written some sermons wearing that robe. It's difficult to run in. In fact, the way, if you were in danger, is you, you pick up the back part of the robe and you lift it up like a onesie <laughs> or a diaper with a t-shirt. And that's how you would run. In other words, there's a lack of dignity to it because love's often very messy. The father wasn't worried about dignity. He was only concerned with embracing the son as soon as he possibly could. It wasn't enough for the father to wait for the son to come around. The father runs to the son. He embraces him. And at this point, the story reads like the son barely can even take in what's taking place. Because whatever is happening, the son still was not cluing in that he was encountering mercy. He was encountering grace. In fact, the son was still so lost to himself, even when he's embraced by grace, he still can't see it. Because he immediately responds with his rehearsed speech of shame. And I call it a rehearsed speech, but it really wasn't. It was the anthem of his false identity. His false identity so proved to him his shame and ill worth, it was very easy for him to own it. But because, it was because he was lost to himself. He was still a son, but he thought he was no longer a son. And so he says, no, I've sinned. 
I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy. And what does the father does, do? He says, okay, if you can't see it yet by my embrace, let me restore you to the community. Let me give you those signs of revelation that reveal who you are. And who you are is not revealed by these filthy robes that have become stained by the pigs you've been feeding. Who you are is revealed by the robe that I provide for you. Who you are is revealed by the sandals that I give you freely without your need to earn them. Who you are is revealed because you have my ring on your finger and I am gonna put it on your stinky, filthy hands so that not only you, but the rest of the community can understand who you are. So the way the son is saved is through love, love restoring his true identity. Not even making him something that he wasn't before but restoring to him who he always was as a child of God, as a son of the father who could never be unsunned. And then that's not enough. And this is where we get these metaphors, but they're metaphors. He was dead, but now he's alive. What does that mean? He, he resuscitated him, resurrected him. Not that God can't do that, but that's not what it means here. It's a metaphor for saying he was lost to himself. He was lost to his identity. He's alive now because in my love, I've restored his understanding of who he is. So, 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 so he's lost, but he's found. He's dead, but he's alive again. And the only response is to celebrate. Let's kill that fattened calf. This is the moment we've been waiting for. It is time for ribeye and, and, and sirloin and brisket. Come on, let's bring it all together now and let's have a party. And somewhere in all of that transfer, we, we don't even hear the narrative of the son anymore. All we know, the next thing he knows, he's embraced, he's got a robe, and now he's getting ready to eat ribeye with lots of other people because they're all in on the celebration. Well, there's one who chooses not to come, but we'll talk about that guy next week. So there's this great celebration because it's an expression of the father's heart of the joy, not because someone who didn't register on his radar finally came into his sight, not because someone who's a sinner now became a saint, but because a child realized he was a son all along. The father bestowed that upon him, brought him that revelation. And this is the moment the father's been waiting for. This is not a time for I told you so and how could you? It's a time to celebrate, to celebrate his return. And what does this return uh, represent? This, my friends, is what the Bible's talking about when it uses the word repentance. It, it is narrow Christian doctrine that has ruined that word. Because for us, repentance is a word that means regret and shame and a lot of saying that you're sorry. But repentance is just metanoia. It is changing your mind. It is your mind accepting not your toxic reality, but the reality of God's grace in which you actually inhabit and choosing to shift your mind to live in that world rather than this lower one. That's what it is. The, the son changed his mind about what he wanted out of life, which was not to starve. That was as lofty as it went. And he comes back home and his mind still isn't fully changed. I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I be your servant? But then his mind is changed again because the father puts a robe on him and sandals for his feet and a ring on his, father, uh, on his finger. And then his mind is changed once again because the father throws him a party. This is repentance. It's actually choosing to believe God's love for you in spite of the behavior that tells you you're not worthy of it. The true greatest act of faith in our faith system is to actually accept 
God's acceptance of you. That is the battle of faith. Because as humans who are broken and whose, the messages we receive reinforce our shame and unworthiness, it's very difficult to work through all of that garbage to actually take the leap and trust that God has accepted me simply because of who he is and who he created me to be, not for any other reason. But that in fact happens to the son. The father rejoices in the son's repentance rather than simply grieving over his sin. The son's identity was defined by the father's love rather than his behavior because we are accepted by God because of identity, not behavior. I am not saying, and I hope that you could hear crystal clear from this, that behavior is inconsequential. There are consequences. In fact, kind of this boastful Christian faith that we say, well, I'm bulletproof till God's done with me. Not really. You can eat, drink, smoke, act yourself into an early grave if you choose to do that. However, where we've messed up is not reminding people, if that's what you choose, when you shut your eyes, the Father's still right there with you. So yes, choices and behavior are enormously consequential and they can have life-altering consequences undesirable life-altering consequences. But even the worst of those consequences will not take us outside of the realm of God's love and restorative grace. And so we are defined, who we are is defined and our acceptance is based on our identity in Christ, not our behavior in our sin. So what about you? Have you drifted and are you ready to come home? Are you living as a struggling sinner or as a redeemed yet maturing child of God? Because for some reason in the church, we demonize the period of time where we have to grow and mature, which includes mistakes and failings and fallings. It's all part of the redemptive process of God bringing us into a full expression of who he created us to be. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in what? Weakness. I thought your power was perfected based on how many scriptures I memorized. I thought your power was perfected in how pure my doctrine was. I thought your power was perfected because I started listening to Striper instead of Twisted Sister. My power is perfected in weakness. Then Paul's takeaway is, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. My friends, weakness and immaturity are not sin. Weakness and immaturity are necessary for growth into maturity. So the idea is not to be shamed by our weaknesses, but to face them as invitations to grow in strength. Thus we repent and we come home. The obstacle is the way. The weakness is the path to strength. And until you can embrace, this is why I love, love, love 12-step programs where people are not shamed to say, without grace, my life is unmanageable. Only a God can restore me to sanity, but if you will not recognize the unmanageability of your life or the insanity of your life outside of God's grace, you can't ever walk through the door to embrace it. The obstacle is the way. The weakness is the key to strength. This is how it works in God's economy. Face your weakness as your means of growth, my friend. Would you all stand with me? As we get ready to come to the Lord's table, Again, a table that he shared with the devoted, with the doubting, with the deceiving, and with the denying. To come to the Lord's table, 
as our gifted worship leaders create space for us to pause and reflect. My question to you is this, what do you need to be empowered to live as a forgiven person? No A sewn into your shirt. Clean shirt, forgiven person. Because my friends, if life has taught me anything, it is this, you cannot change until you forgive your past self. It's not enough to believe that God forgives you. Can you incarnate that forgiveness in your own heart towards yourself? That's the only way it becomes functionally liberating. So if you can't, it's okay. But as you come to the table of the Lord, as you take a moment to reflect, I implore you to ask the Spirit to give you that which you cannot give yourself.